Hello and welcome back. With me today is Christopher Mott, a research fellow at the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy. He is here today uh, speaking in a personal capacity about an article that he wrote for the National Interest called In Ukraine and Syria, Alluring False Flags Demand Strategic Skepticism. Christopher, how are you? I'm really good. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for joining me. This article is really good and it's really important because if one thing has defined the war in Ukraine, it is the fog of war and specifically the fog of information war. I have never seen so many claims come out of a conflict that on the one hand go viral and concretize into truth people just accept it, this thing happened or this claim is correct. And then within 24 hours, you find out that either the, the claim was half true or completely false. But then it doesn't really matter anymore because enough people have already accepted it as true. And there are obvious examples of this that you could argue are almost harmless, like the Snake Island Massacre, you know, fake Right. Uh, the pictures of Zelensky in body armor grinning as he you know, heads towards the front lines with the Avengers to take on the, uh, the Russians, fake or uh, staged. So half true. Um, the, I mean, there, there are almost too many. Ghost of Kiev. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The ghost of Kiev. Uh, the last body count I saw was 49, f between 40 and 49 Russian uh, fighter jets shot down by a single Ukrainian pilot tweeted out by the Kiev Post, which is actually like an established media publication in Ukraine, not like a, an upstart that you would, you know, oh, if, yeah. you wouldn't I expect. I published with them once, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. Like, I saw that tweet and I was like, this this has to be a joke. Like, no, I mean, it's like the 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 way, I, I guess if you're an American, it's not that big of a surprise. I was going to liken it to like an established legacy media organization in the United States just tweeting out something that is absurdly false. But I mean, we all just went through the whole Jesse Smollett thing. So there, there's <laughs> there's one example. Um, yep. But then there are ones that have the potential of drawing us into the conflict. And I mean, we're already involved. The, unfortunately, the United States is already indirectly involved, but we're talking about getting the United States directly involved. And so the the probably the most obvious ones, and this this is one that you start with, are the uh, the examples of nuclear power plants of Zelensky and his officials saying that Russia is deliberately trying to destroy, to cause, to, the, the term they use is nuclear terrorism. That they're engaging in nuclear te uh, terrorism at Chernobyl and this other nuclear power station in Ukraine that's actually the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe. And in both cases, again. The, the Zelensky government said that Russia was deliberately trying to blow up these plants and that the only solution was uh, direct intervention in the form of uh, a no-fly zone or, or something else. And so you start with that. So let's, you can take it from here. We can start where, with, we could actually start with, is it Zaporizhia? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, I believe it's, uh, I don't know, but I believe it's uh, <laughs> Zaporizhia or something like that. Okay. Uh, but my, uh, yeah, I, I am not the person to ask about Ukrainian pronunciation. Um, <laughs> but um, it is interesting because we saw this and they all came at the same time. They're all like there's fighting around multiple nuclear power plants in the south, in the northeast, et cetera. And there was, there was, but it was reported and I, particularly in the, the kind of uh, running 
uh, real-time commentary of the BBC, which I was looking at at the time, because right then it had the best kind of uh, Western-oriented um, coverage it, earlier on. It was reported that all these things were happening simultaneously and that all of the power plants were on fire. Uh, of course, usually what was damage to buildings had been done to random outlying complexes uh, and not at, the image I think the headlines create in one's head is literally the nuclear power plant is burning um, where if there's fighting near them, that's obviously a huge concern, but it's, it's just, it was very obvious that there was fighting around these plants, conventional fighting that happened to destroy some buildings that were not the reactors. They were not the main power plants. And yeah, we should all be worried about that. But the way they all came out all at once, uh, suddenly it's, it, there was almost, it, it never was said explicitly, but there's almost this bated breath expectation. Is Russia going to create a new Chernobyl? Like, is there some intentional thing here? And I really just think it's the chaos of war coupled with the fact that um, it seems obvious to me that they want to control the country's power supply as leverage uh, for negotiation. Uh, that could be an incredibly stupid thing to do because it, it requires fighting around these areas. But the way in which it was initially presented was not quite accurate, especially because it took about two days for that story to just disappear, right? Russia gets control of these areas or doesn't, and then suddenly you don't hear about the nuclear power plants anymore. Uh, then we move on to both Russia and the United States accusing each other of preparing for chemical and biological weapons attacks, <laughs> and then the story shifts again. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's important that although you're right that fell out of the news cycle, you know, people still the people still think that this is true. That you know that Russia has just increased its arsenal of weapons of mass destruction, like an improvised nuclear power plant, and so. This yeah, is what also did. before the this all happened, remember really early on, they moved troops through the Chernobyl exclusion zone, and there was a lot of breathless reporting about that, right. um, almost like kind of, uh, almost implying right. like they wanted to seize the site so that they could get irradiated materials from it, yeah. and it was it was really strange because it's like uh, no one has more nukes than Russia. The last thing they right. they need is some like buried. Uh, <laughs> half inert, uh, weird, yeah. you know, like dig up the elephant's foot and drop it on Zelensky, Zelensky's presidential palace. Like, I, I don't think it makes any sense. No, it, just on its face. But no, Zelensky, he was probably the worst defender here. I mean, in, in a sense, it makes it, it actually is consistent with him acting in the interest of the Ukrainian national interest. But for us, Fair. obviously, it's bad. But he tweeted, uh, Russian occupation forces are trying to seize the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Our defenders are giving their lives. So the tragedy of 1986 will not be repeated. Unfortunately, uh, the, the Netflix series Chernobyl is still fresh in a lot of people's brains. And I think that that actually probably does play a factor in just like the mass hysteria. Uh, I mean, this, this might be overdone now. But I think it's true that this is like the first Reddit war or the first Marvel movie war in that uh it, it's for a lot of people it, it's kind of like entertainment uh oh yeah these, these horrific scenarios uh these horrific possibilities are in a in a way a kind of macabre form of entertainment like you you almost want this to be true because i, I don't know uh, i don't know so i don't understand the, a very simple super hero versus super villain narrative yeah. um 
that is really, really easy for people whose understanding of the world around them comes from what is effectively children's media rather than like history and philosophy and anthropology and the like. Um, so yes. that's an element of it. But I have to say, I have to add a huge caveat here. Um, Zelensky is, to build on your point, doing a great job. Like if I was him, I 100% would like to think I'd be this effective at getting international support. Um, yeah. he, he His country is under attack. He has... And all of Ukraine have my sympathies because, you know, a sovereign nation is being attacked in a war of aggression by by Russia. But at the same time, I always try to tell people, which gets drowned out, um, you know, that there isn't, unlike these superhero narratives a lot of people turn to, there isn't a, um, <laughs> it's just, there's too much going on here. <laughs> and, yeah. and there's no such thing as a interest in everyone's interest right washington's yeah. interest is not the same as kiev's interest is not the same as moscow's interest and there aren't just bad actors and good actors there's seriously clashing interests that sometimes cannot be resolved so while i have i mean i really want ukraine to do well i want i want ukraine to to like punish russia for doing this but at the same time um it, i'm an american i'm not ukrainian and uh, people really need to have that distance and they need to know, like, this is literally a country right next door to Russia. Uh, it's Russia's not going anywhere. Ukraine's not going anywhere. Even if Ukraine defeats Russia entirely somehow, uh, defies all of the things, it, that situation remains unchanged. Then the Russian army reforms and they maybe come back in a decade or so. And so there needs to be a longer term solution, which means almost certainly that since Ukraine is the weaker party, some form of concession. You've already got Zelensky talking about, you know, neutrality is is totally fine. And it should be. Ukraine should be a neutral state. And some of us were saying that before the war broke out. I've been saying that since 2014, yeah. um, if not earlier. I, and it's just this, there's this weird conflation of moralism with the NATO alliance, as if NATO is not a security arrangement for a specific block of people and right. a network for selling weapons. Like, yeah. <laughs> that, you know, that, that's what it is. Yeah. But it's no, NATO is good. And, and, and countries, if we say a country can't or shouldn't join NATO, if we make an argument about overexpansion being bad or whatnot, or having to then place American troops right on Russia's border, in the Donbass or whatever, that is viewed as selling people out. Uh, that is viewed as, you know, the, the, just compromising with the forces of darkness. And this is yeah. the reason why, you know, last month, right before the war broke out, but there was a lot of talk about stuff like this. I wrote an article in the American Conservative about, like, just reminding everyone not everything is World War II. <laughs> and the narrative right. of World War II that you have, it probably is... I'm still not actually all that historically accurate anyway right. because I feel right. like when people run out of their comic book and their children's literature uh, comparison narratives they reach immediately to the one event that education apparently teaches people which is the second <laughs> <laughs> right yeah, it's the only framework that we have for understanding anything at all at any given time, whether it's the yeah. Donald Trump candidacy or the this the the ongoing conflict. I mean, I just saw a Ukrainian journalist whose uh, quote community based indie publication uh, was founded with grant money from uh, the Open Society Foundation and the National Endowment uh, for Democracy. Which <laughs> it, this is like not this is not a secret. This is the co founder himself has said, yeah, we're we're basically just a CIA front, <laughs> we're a CIA backed front group, and and this the editor in chief. Uh, 
tweeted out a thread and the first tweet was was suggesting that uh this is uh putin's final solution for ukraine <sighs> just non-stop yeah. world war ii analogies and people eat it up because again it, it has this powerful moralism to it and i think that's that's a really good point about nato is that to to suggest that you know, Ukraine is not, can't join NATO. It's almost like you're saying Ukraine is not good enough in a, in a moral sense. Um, and you, it's like you're leaving them to the forces of darkness by not allowing them to join the the good international community when that's not actually what NATO is. Uh, NATO is a tool for certain interest groups, mostly in Washington. And, but, but that's not what we tell people. We, we tell people yeah. that it's, that it's actually kind of like the gatekeeper of this, this, nice global community where all the good people hang out. And then if you're not in NATO, it's because you're bad. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and, and it, I think it's, yeah. it's really telling that, um, you know, I, I like that a bunch of people suddenly who didn't care about it before now suddenly care about state sovereignty because I'm generally in the camp of being pro state sovereignty. Right. It has to take quite <laughs> a lot for me to change that view. But these same people oftentimes were championing the undermining of the sovereignty of, say, Libya, which was destroyed by NATO countries, multiple NATO countries, <laughs> successfully toppled the government and then reintroduced chattel slavery to it. So it's like, um, excuse me, like <laughs> some consistency right. here would just be great for having a discussion. Right. But. Yeah. Can we have ultranationalism at home now? Is that is that a possibility, you know, now that we're all on board with like the the ultranationalists in Ukraine, which is, again, there's a reason why I haven't really, the only reason I've spoken about Azov and like right sector is just to point out that these groups are different from the from regular Ukrainian forces in the sense that they're the most likely to perform atrocities against against their own people. And that right sector has some shady connections to Western intelligence agencies but other than that, I haven't really, I haven't really commented on them because, because I mean, th this this war is, uh, it's it's complex for a number of different reasons. But you know, uh, we have people like Kathy Young, like these these writers at publications like the Bulwark and the Dispatch and Reason, who are either defending ultranationalist groups in Ukraine and and sovereignty, um, or just dis choosing to overlook you know the reality of what these groups do and. No, the answer to my own question is we're not going to have ultranationalism at home now. And the same people that are defending Ukrainian uh, sovereignty and ultranationalism are the same ones that, that will insist that America is an idea. Therefore, it cannot have borders or uh, control over its own, uh, its own sovereignty, whether that comes down to immigration or, for example, allowing foreign countries to buy up tons of real estate uh, like China in the United States, you know? I mean, right. It, yeah, that's also why I haven't pointed out, you know, that it's hypocritical because to them it's not hypocritical. It's perfectly consistent for these people to champion ultranationalism in Ukraine and then denounce anyone who thinks that we should have borders as racist. That's so it's it's kind of a, a fool's errand. But getting back to um, to the false flag thing, because you you said that Zelensky sounds like he's ready to make concessions. I think that he's stalling uh, because he will literally say one day. Uh, you know, we have to accept we can't join NATO and we have to accept that, you know, we have to agree to terms to resolve this conflict quickly. And the next day, he'll literally say we're not making any territorial concessions, i.e. Uh, the Donbass, Crimea, etc. Uh, and NATO needs to give us more planes and tanks. Like within 24 hours, he'll make these two completely different statements. 
the, he, he did an interview with the economist that was published yesterday. And it was, I think it was actually along those lines. Like we need more weapons and like more, more destructive capabilities. And we're not making any uh, concessions to Russia. And I'm sure that tomorrow he'll say the opposite, but, but if he's stalling, and the goal, the ulterior goal, is to get Western countries, specifically the United States, involved. Probably the only way that he can do that, or at least the, the quickest and most powerful way to do that, would be through something like a false flag operation. This is an extremely delicate subject. We've we've touched on it a little bit already with the nuclear power plants. Uh, I, there's this tweet that was deleted by a guy, ironically, his Twitter handle is no lie with Brian Tyler Cohen. And he tweeted out that uh, that at the Zaporizhia, however you pronounce it, nuclear power plant, uh, a Ukrainian official told the Associated Press that uh, radiation levels were beginning to go up uh, in the area and that Ukraine's prime minister called on NATO to, quote, close the skies over the country. It is the question of security of the whole world. Thankfully, all of that turned out to be false. Radiation levels were not going up. We did not pull the trigger on a no-fly zone because that would entail shooting down Russian aircraft and destroying anti-air defense systems uh, that Russia has. Uh, that didn't happen. We got close. Including but ones now, in Russia, by the way, because, of course, we would be flying so close to Russian yes, airspace yes, that we yes. would inevitably be fired on by yes. forces stations in Russia. Right. That's right. Of course, the public isn't told that because they're not supposed to know. Um, or, in some, unfortunately, in some cases, they don't care. But now that the latest thing is... Uh, chemical weapons. Everyone should be alarmed that suddenly uh, everyone from Joe Biden to, to NATO is saying that we're drawing the red line at intervention for chemical weapons. And because this is all happening in the context of this debate over over these labs in Ukraine. And also, uh, I mean, th <laughs> th this is, I mean, we'll get into the whole Assad Syria thing, but Basically, we should be really, really concerned about the fact that we've just we've we've created a very specific red line uh, yes. at chemical weapons. And so in your piece, because I think first we should just talk about false flags and then we can get into chemical weapons. But in your piece, you give a few examples of, of examples of false flags that have triggered conflicts. If you want to go over a few of those. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's. Many I could have chosen from, but it's it's not a book; it's an article. So I <laughs> I limited myself to a few of the interesting ones. The first one I go back to is um, this event where a uh, in the in the mid 18th century, early to mid 18th century, where a um, a British captain uh, off the coast of what is now Florida uh, on the brig Rebecca got boarded by a Spanish patrol boat, and they, the countries were not at war at the time. And in a personal altercation, the Spanish captain cut off his ear. Uh, the interesting thing about this is that nothing came of it when it happened. It, it, it kind of went back into the background that, you know, this was near the tail end of the high age of piracy in the Caribbean. So, you know, you enter the area, you probably assumed that things happened. Um, but later on, when Britain decided that it wanted to have a naval war with Spain, we're talking literally nine years later, the incident was, but there was a, there's an acrimonious debate in Parliament, and the incident was dredged up to turn the balance in favor of the pro-war faction. So all of a sudden, Captain Jenkins, that's his name, gets called to Parliament, and he, he <laughs> brings his pickled, severed ear with him, and they pass it around between all members of Parliament to make their case to, for declaring war on Spain, um, which they do. 
uh, it, 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 uh, it perhaps tips the balance or they were already going to anyway and it just sealed the deal, but uh, that became part of it. The, the War of Jenkins' Ear, which is literally what it came to be called, albeit much later, it was not called that at the time, um, the War of Jenkins' Ear would go on to be incredibly indecisive, by the way. So it's not like you can say that this ear uh, brought Britain like great benefit or anything. This, Spain was clearly declining in this point of history, but it wasn't like it would be later. And Britain quite wasn't what it would be later either. So you have this very indecisive war. Uh, lots of money and lives are spent. There is a North American aspect to it, of course, with uh, various indigenous tribes fighting each other, uh, backed by different people. Uh, but this, in the end, it becomes a stalemate. It doesn't really go anywhere. Um, so that was my first historical example. <laughs> and then I used uh, multiple examples from Imperial Japan because this was apparently a, a thing that got baked into the strategic culture of Japanese. Yeah. And um, <laughs> the idea coming, of course, from um, Saigo Takamori, who originally in the 1870s, said that I'll go to Korea when people were thinking, should we attack Korea, yes or no, due to a variety of disputes. And he said, I'll go there. Um, I'll go there and I'll insult their royal family so hard that they'll have no choice but to kill me. And then you can declare war on them because they killed me, one of your founding fathers, effectively, in the Meiji oligarchs who built modern Japan. They were kind of like America's founding fathers in the sense that there's this group of them who have major disagreements with each other, but they all work together to create a, a new form of government. Uh, Saigo Takamori was uh, one of the two people who was much more militant and uh, army-based of those people. And um, so he uh, has this whole offer. They turn him down. It doesn't happen. But later on, he goes and dies and becomes martyred historically for leading a, a samurai rebellion in 1877 called the Satsuma Rebellion. Uh, it, do it doesn't work. <laughs> no, no matter what Tom Cruise uh, might want people to think, it, it never really stood much of a chance. And uh, they mostly just cowered in shell holes while the, uh, the government's army blew them apart. But um, in the end, he died. And... Um, but a lot of the extreme far-right elements of the Imperial Army got really obsessed with him in later eras. Like, we're, we're not talking immediately. We're talking, like, generations down the line. People were like, oh, if only Saigo had his way, everything would be so great. So this idea permeates the strategic culture of the Army and the intelligence services. And then it gets used most... It gets used multiple times, actually, by, by Imperial Japan. But the most important one is the Mukden incident in 1931, where Japanese colonial railway concessions were bombed, but bombed so lightly that it didn't do any damage to the railway whatsoever. <laughs> um, it, it literally did not stop any of the business going on in southern Manchuria. It was just a bomb went off by the railroad tracks. And immediately it looked like, oh, well, this is, this is Chinese nationalist saboteurs. Uh, we have no choice but to secure our railway concessions in Manchuria by invading and annexing Manchuria. And before there can even be a public debate over it, the army floods out of Korea and out of the Kwantung Lease concession in southern China, which was also a Japanese colony at the time. And they, they take over within a year, they take over all of Manchuria, which is, you know, like three times the size of France and very resource rich. Uh, and this actually becomes the engine of Japan's later expansion towards the rest of China and the rest of Asia in World War II. Um, it caused the fall of the government because they couldn't say we've lost control of the army because that would mean admitting that they had no power. <laughs> um, they couldn't recall the army because the army might say no, which would once again would 
admit they had no power because the army had become, over the course of the 1920s, the most powerful uh, branch of the government. Uh, so the government just resigned, and the new uh, kind of army-friendly government came to power, which, of course, yeah. uh, would lead them to some really bad decisions down the line. <laughs> uh, and so you, you, have, you have this, uh, you know, this, this kind of thing can, it obviously has a use, right? Like when you're talking yeah. to people in, in what was then still not quite fascistic Japan, but kind of moving in that direction, if people said, we're just going to outright annex Manchuria, it would have been extremely controversial. But if it's like, oh my God, our, our literal, you know, lifeline to iron and coal through the railway is under attack. We have to do something right now. It completely changes the public discussion on the matter. So, you know, that's, that's the thing. Uh, <laughs> that, that's, this is a thing that happens, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the example that I've given around the time, I think it was probably around the time that well, I'm not sure if it was around the time that chemical weapons started to be talked about, uh, but it but it was um, around then, I think, just before then. Uh, but it was the RMS Lusitania, mm. uh, and uh, basically, it's this this British uh, liner that is sunk by the Germans during World War One, I, I think, in 1915, and the Germans sink it because they suspect or they know that it's it's actually it it. Yes, it's filled with civilians, but it's also carrying tons of uh, ammunition. Uh, literally tons of it. It's not like a small amount. Like it's, it's actually carrying a significant amount of, of, of war material. And they sink it. Uh, you know, obviously, unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of civilians, uh, I think just over a thousand passengers and crew end up dying. And Sounds what's that? Sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the incident causes international outrage. And the Germans are just kind of confused because they're just like, well, you know, this is against this is against the rules of war, and we, you know, we were justified in sinking this ship, um, and it's it's actually your fault for for putting civilians on it, and uh, it, it turns out to be true. Like years later, we we've pretty much confirmed that like the the Lusitania was in fact carrying uh, materials for the war, and the Germans were justified in doing it. But the the point is is that the sinking of the Lusitania contributed. To, uh, to outrage against Germany in the United States. We didn't join World War II until two years later, but the way that the, the incident was propagandized in the United States, it, it certainly helped fuel anti-German sentiment. Yes. Uh, that th these people are barbarians, that they're you know, the murderers of innocence. Um, and it contributed to, to the, the kind of anti-German sentiment that we're now seeing uh, against Russians that Russian uh, civilians are, are now experiencing that, you know, there, there's no distinction to be made between the country of Germany and uh, Germans themselves, or in this case, between Russia and Russian civilians. Um, I don't know if you can hear my son having a, yeah, I <laughs> in the background, but I think it'll end shortly. Um, but yeah, so two years later we join and the Lusitania, I think was, it, it certainly contributed toward the desire of Americans to, you know, quote, do something. Um, and specifically because it, it, a lot of, a lot of civilians were killed in this incident. And I don't, I mean, I've characterized it as a, as like a quasi false flag, uh, because the, because the truth of it was not told for obvious reasons. It, it, it was not useful to tell people like, 
And it's, it's also difficult to say that, you know, like the, actually the British had endangered their own civilians by doing this and Germany was actually justified in doing it. And then two years later, I think Germany announces that once again, it would conduct uh, full unrestricted submarine warfare against vessels. So that didn't help. But the, but the point is, is that we, we've been here before. Uh, the United States specifically has been in a position where things like false flags contribute to to the desire of the population to join a war that otherwise doesn't actually interest them. Uh, right. Like there is, no, I mean, my my position is there is no American interest in getting directly involved in this war uh, against Russia in Ukraine. It it would only, I think, hurt the American interest. So now we arrive at the question of chemical weapons and. Uh, I, I would I would say it's it's also it's not just that it's also yeah. the the creation of an oversimplified narrative in general. So in the yeah. course of the Lusitania specifically, you have something. Uh, you're kind of <clears throat> if you're embracing the kind of what I'm sure at the time was the New York Times position on the matter. You're ignoring the fact that the U.S. was actually perfectly happy to sell boatloads of weapons to everyone in World War One. But the British blockade right. meant it just so happened that only one side happened to get the weapons. So the other side had to do something else about this because the U.S. literally yeah. became Britain and France's manufactory for especially artillery and, and shells and the like. And so it's like that is a context that is just missing. Whether, whether one is manufacturing consent or not about intervention, it still oversimplifies the narrative, which is also, I would say, uh, a thing that's with us still. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, look, it's it's not up for debate that the United States has been funding um, biological research in Ukraine. Like it's just it's just it's easy to prove that. Right. Uh, yeah. the, the, the most recent claim actually came from the Russian government. And uh, it was that that you can base the basic claim was that you can connect Hunter Biden to uh, these bio labs in Ukraine through his business dealings. And of course, that was immediately, you know, dismissed because the Russian MOD, uh, because it came directly from the Russian government. So American journalists immediately were like, you know, this is this is directly, you know, obviously this is pandering at dumb conservatives who hate Biden and his family, and it's it's so obviously false. But it's not. I mean, you can you can literally trace government contracts to uh, an R and D organization, uh, an R and D firm called I think Metabiota. And Metabiota, um, at the time that it was getting money from the federal government to conduct research in both Georgia and Ukraine, uh, was in uh, Seneca Technology Partners' portfolio uh, as, as one of these firms that basically this, this Hunter Biden uh, fund was invested in. So you mean like you can – like the basic claim that you can connect uh, Biden – to these labs uh, at the time that they were doing research in Georgia and Ukraine and receiving federal money to do that. Like that's just true. Um, so I guess it's, it's kind of similar to, to, to the Lusitania thing in the sense that there's, there's, there's money involved anyways, but. Right. Of course the Russians are totally lying by saying they're bioweapons labs specifically yeah. because I, yeah. I, it would be, I mean, I wouldn't put anything past U.S. foreign policy establishment of the past 20 years when it comes to incompetence, but it would really be a whole new thing if we were cooking up uh, secret bioweapons labs right on the border with Russia, right on the border with a rival state. That would be a level of stupidity that is almost impossible to fathom, 
even yeah. by these people. So yeah. I, I think it's it's a like the Russians are creating their obvious own false flags. So yeah. All of Ukraine is run by Nazis. Uh, these yeah. weapons are probably you know the, the U.S. is funding labs that will you know spread whatever into Russia because of reasons like that's all completely ridiculous. But we yes. as a public we know that's ridiculous because the Russians say. It. So yes. when it comes time for people to say, well, why does the U.S. fund all these bio labs in Ukraine? And, and maybe we should look into that, especially if we have to evacuate them and sterilize them because of Russian troops are coming. Like this is a conversation worth having. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's exactly that's exactly what people like Tulsi Gabbard have been saying. But just because she has suggested that at the same time that the Russian government is is also talking about this. You know, she's been condemned as a traitor and a liar. Um, but I mean, the, the irony is, is that the, the, what people like Gabbard are saying actually is in our interest because it makes people safer. <laughs> you know, like, mm -hmm. like you said, sanitizing these labs and, and destroying them to make sure that people don't get their hands on them. First, you have to acknowledge that they exist, <laughs> which we, we, we have ha a hard time doing. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, so this, this, again, gets us into this question of chemical weapons. Uh, and so the unspeakable thing is that we, by we, I mean the West has kind of created an incentive for setting aside like Russian false flags, because we're talking about things that could get the United States directly involved in this war. So what is one of them? Well, worst case scenario, uh, we, we've just incentivized uh, bad actors to use chemical weapons uh, or biological agents to basically trigger that NATO intervention. Yes. Uh, who those bad actors are, I, I don't know. Um, I, I think for a lot of people, the, the obvious answer would be somebody like Azov. These Because, I mean, yes, they're Ukrainians, but they're also, I mean, these guys are literally like jihadis. Like, they're ideological yeah. extremists. They're not beyond killing other Ukrainians uh, because, you know, they're ethnic Russians or something like that. Like, these, these people are, they're the so-called moderate rebels of Ukraine. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and so we actually have an example of this, or at least a debate over something that uh, really kind of resembles, uh, uh, or it gives us an, an example of, you know, like a, a possible scenario. And uh, you have t touched on this. It's a really delicate subject. It's the use of chemical weapons uh, in Syria and the debate over whether or not it was actually Assad that used them or these Western-backed moderate rebels who are not actually moderate. Uh, and, you know, they're actually extremists, a lot like Azov. Yeah, well, I, I would say in their case, in terms of what they've actually done, they're even worse than Azov. Right. Um, but, yeah, no, that that is... So I've been following... I, I'm not a serious specialist, I, I but the war happened to break out when I was getting my doctorate at a university which has a really... One of the, if not the top serious studies uh, programs and I was like, I had friends who were in it and I, I asked for questions and I, I got to meet people from Syria. And it was just very obvious from the very beginning that there was narrative shaping going on with that war um, for the British and American press. At the time I was living in Britain. So that was my first, uh, uh, you know, exposure to, to journalism and the conflict. And I just retained this very critical but curious attitude towards uh, that conflict. Uh, and I followed it ever since uh, because it was a really important conflict. It had everyone was involved in some way or another. And I think for many people, 
it's a conflict that simmers in the background, but they don't pay attention to it. And then uh, something headline grabbing will happen and they'll just pay attention to that one thing for like a week and then it goes away again. So there's no putting together the pieces and how they fit. Now, I'm not going to make any specific claims that, you know, X group did Y thing, especially when it came to deploying chemical weapons, because I don't know. I'll be the first person to admit I don't know who exactly who did what. But we need to, if we're going to examine anything critically, we need to examine, like, what happened, who has motivation to make it happen, and could the narrative be wrong? Because we have seen time and time again, whether it's Iraqi weapons of mass destruction, uh, the success of democracy promotion in the Middle East, uh, you know, uh, Libya, etc., when the media told us that Gaddafi's forces had been issued by Agra to mass rape their way through rebel areas, it was total BS, the story was made up. Um, there's been a lot of lies <laughs> and, and no, they don't all come from Moscow. Like there, there's just been a lot of warranted skepticism here. And there, it was clearly controversial within the DC establishment to intervene in Syria or not. So I think that fight got particularly nasty because there were a lot of people in Washington who said, no, we don't want a part of this whatsoever. Uh, and there were a lot of people who said that they did. And so this, this kind of spilled into the general public. But then you have Obama possibly noticing how Libya was going to hell. And he had originally not been in favor of that intervention. Uh, it was Britain and France who really, really pushed that war. And then Hillary Clinton and Samantha Power really choose to be the decisive voices for that war within the U.S. And eventually, to his discredit, he did go along with them. But he was kind of skeptical. And the way that it was shaping off once Gaddafi fell, it was obvious that his skepticism was kind of more asserting itself. So he he probably thought he had a bit of an out and he said, we won't, he publicly said, we won't get involved in the Syrian civil war unless there is the use of chemical weapons. That is our now infamous phrase, red line. Right. Um, and then the second he said that, <laughs> right. there, you know, literally, I don't know, a month after he said that, maybe, like, like there was a chemical weapons attack, the first right. uh, confirmed chemical weapons attack of the war. Now, yeah. why on earth, just looking at it and knowing that we don't have 100% proof either way, then you have to look at motive, uh, which is why I really emphasize in my article for the national interest, the importance of looking at motive. Like, why yeah. on earth would Assad yeah. Declare, de- de- deploy chemical weapons, not just after Obama <laughs> said this. That's the one thing that will bring in U.S. involvement in the war. Um, but also, yeah. yeah but, but also in a battle that he was winning. It wasn't right. like this was like a last gasp, desperate, like oh my god, the whole army will fall if we don't just release clouds. Like no, this this happened in a battle that they were doing quite well in uh, the Eastern Ghouta attack, twenty fourteen. So it's. I mean, immediately, at this point, I was only two years into, like, following the war. Once again, not my focus. I, I, was, a, I was a Central Asia person at that time, and, and this wasn't. But, you know, I was, I was following this, and this happens. And my immediate reaction was, oh, this is BS. Like, there, there, yeah. <laughs> there's just something yeah. so off about this, if you've been yeah. at all paying attention to the context of it. Now, that is not to say that Syrian government doesn't have chemical weapons. Uh, they obviously do. Um, but it is noteworthy that in 2014, so shortly after this, Seymour Hersh uh, reported that the scuttlebutt around D.C. was that everyone in the war had chemical weapons. 
Uh, so right. we already yeah. have the whole, like, Assad doesn't have a monopoly on chemical weapons thing. Right. Then we have the, he completely lacks a motive. He has, in fact, the opposite of a motive right. to do it. But the <laughs> rebels have a huge motive to drop chemical weapons because this is their only shot. Because at this point in the war, they're losing. The, the, the yes. tide has totally turned against them. So that was just immediately, I was like, oh, my God, I, I can't believe, <laughs> like, uh, you know, things that come out about this. I have to be skeptical. Then we had this deal. We had this U.S.-Russia deal to get rid of serious chemical weapons. It was like a joint thing. It was a way for America to kind of save face without actually getting involved in a way to, for Russia looked like a responsible statement. And, and we both took these chemical weapons out of the country. I'm probably not all of them. I'm sure Assad has kept some for for you know a, a dangerous moment or whatever but um most of them maybe uh got out and we're currently destroying them i think somewhere in tennessee or something it's, it's like a long process um but it, the whole thing is weird we know thanks to seymour hirsch that all sides have it and and with the implication that turkey might even have come up with the idea of, mm. of launching the false flag attack uh, but yeah. that's very unsubstantiated. That, that's very rumor mockery. But that is kind of the thrust of his article on it. Um, and that the Turks always bring up this issue whenever they talk about how much they hate Assad. Uh, and then we have a bunch of various chemical weapons attacks that occur. And I'm sure once the cat's out of the bag, it's quite possible that both the government and the rebels both now just use chemical weapons for all right. I know. Um, I'm totally not going to go on record and say that, like, oh, Damascus never would use them or, or they don't use them. But I, I 100 percent totally on, in a personal capacity doubt that they were the first to use them <laughs> and that they were the ones to, to start this whole thing. And then we also I don't know about the veracity of every single claim to chemical weapons attack. So I'm not going to go through each one of them because, you know, frankly, it gets very perplexing and, and it's hard to make a case quite like I can make for the first one. But I can say the 2018 attacks, the Duma attacks, um, they also look incredibly questionable. They were yeah. the ones that led to Trump bombing <clears throat> Syria um, in a very ineffectual, I don't even, th I think it like destroyed like three Syrian planes or something. Uh, it, it's a very, it was very like virtue signal via cruise missile kind of thing. Um, yeah. But it did lead to a US attack on this. And of course you would think that the media who really didn't like Trump could have jumped all over this and said like, did you bomb Syria on false pretext? But no one did, yeah. right? Because it, was this, one this first, is... it was one of the only times they, ironically, the, you know, the, the, the mostly peaceful media, uh, was one of the only times they liked Trump was when he, he launched, how many, was it like a, 50 tomahawks or something ridiculous like that? Yeah, yeah, a, a huge amount of missiles that didn't actually do all that much. Uh, yeah. It turns out that base hardening uh, on your airports kit with like big towers of concrete can actually do a lot of good. Um, <laughs> but so yeah, I'll, no. I'll, read, I'll read really quick for context for listeners. Uh, the Gray Zone has done really um, interesting work on this topic, and there is uh, they they have a whole archive called the Duma Archive where they they go over what is in their view a lot of important questions that are not being asked about this stuff and so so here is the uh, just a few words from an article in the Gray Zone uh, that that kind of give context to what you're saying about like the the doubts about whether or not you know these these chemical weapons were used at all or and who used them so. Uh, in the early days of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons investigation of an alleged chemical attack in Duma, Syria, expert toxicologists ruled out chlorine gas as the cause of death for the more than 40 civilians reported at the scene. Instead of publishing this finding, a senior OPC officials 
concealed it and then launched an investigation of a veteran inspector who questioned the censorship. Uh, the According to the gray zone, the manipulation began when the OPCW's fact-finding mission produced a 115-page report in June 2018. The report found no evidence of a chemical weapons attack in Duma. This undermined the stated pretext for U.S.-led airstrikes on Syria two months prior and raised the possibility that insurgents had staged the April 7, 2018 incident to frame the Syrian government. So that is what most people, including myself, um, I didn't know this until, you know, until I was, I, I remembered the talk about, you know, a false flag in Syria. And I, I went looking for, you know, what I could find about it. And I, I came across, like I said, mostly the gray zone, but this is what most people in the West have. They don't even know that this debate exists. Yes, absolutely. It, it, there's, there's been a kind of, it's not censorship because no, no one's being censored, but it's a very like, the pub, the the editors and the publication say we talk about this, we don't talk about this. It's kind of like a, a, a information gap through osmosis kind of thing, right? Like, uh, <laughs> we, no one just mentions it, so it, it sounds kooky, it sounds weird. But it, the Greyhounds reporting has talked a lot. Aaron Mate in particular has talked a lot about how there were leaks from inside the OPCW saying from two different people who were who were like i believe like 20 25 year veterans of the organization right. saying that they thought the report their original report had been heavily doctored that their conclusions about what the chemicals used in duma were totally inconclusive uh that it could have been uh the effects of like an air vacuum because a bomb hit a building and the air got sucked out of it temporarily. It could have been the fact that the building had a lot of cleaning supplies in it. And so there was bleach in the air after the bomb hit. There are so many things. And they said they couldn't find specific evidence of the specific claims. And this, yeah, no one's heard of this. It's, it's, it's you know, and, and you have to ask, well, who has the reason after the failure of Eastern Gouda to manufacture consent for further intervention? I don't want to, of course, imply that NATO countries weren't already involved in, a, in another way in the Syrian civil war, because we certainly set right. up a rat line getting Libyan weapons to Syria, most of which fell into the hands of jihadists. So uh, the, the war on terror lasted about 10 years before we decided to reconcile with our old Cold War buddies. Um, and uh, it's just... You know, you look at this and it's like, look, I don't know if there was a chemical attack or not in Duma. I, I but it, it, it looks like we really need to find out and the, the official statement isn't going to be adequate. And then we have to ask ourselves, well, who wants us to think that? And it's not just the rebels. I do think that there are factions in NATO countries that say, like, this is our chance to to justify going in that they've always wanted to go in. I've never heard a valid um, reason by any of these people of what a post-war American Syria would look like. Um, I, 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 in my mind, I can kind of imagine this nightmare scenario where, where central government collapses and there's just like sectarian warfare all over the place. It sounds um, familiar. Oddly yeah, familiar. It, it sounds like that might be a thing that happens when we do these. <laughs> yeah, I, I think in the case, this really in the case of Syria in particular, Iraq, though, I'm correctly. Yeah, exactly. But like in the case of Syria in particular, though, it's like there are so many minority groups in, in Syria and they're almost all on the shit list of the moderate rebels. So I really have to like, who, who do we, who is the ground force that maintains orders? Like, but right. nevertheless, I don't think people have thought that far ahead. They just say, we look weak if we don't, you know, quote unquote, do something. <laughs> we look weak. And I'm like, I don't 
care if we like <laughs> who cares what we look like people have made a really bad calls on our weakness before saddam hussein looked at the vietnam war and said oh americans are pussies i can do whatever i want to them uh and they can't object you know when i take kuwait and then he got completely destroyed like it's the context matters <laughs> and it's just completely ridiculous but obviously there there's a coalition of interests um that wants more intervention in syria and so they like the chemical weapons angle uh, and they are going to push it as far as they possibly can and that was in many ways a trial balloon for what we're now seeing in ukraine now for all i know putin's invasion of ukraine has gone so spectacularly awful for such a powerful country operating right in its neighborhood, right on a bordering state, land border, there's no mountain ranges, you know, whatever. Everything seems to be going wrong when you consider how much more powerful Russia is than Ukraine. At this point, I wouldn't say I could say definitively that Putin won't do something weird, unpredictable and drastic to try to get out of this uh, situation. But is is it going to be this? And if it is this, it's weird because a lot of people will, even if he did, a lot of people would ask justifiably questions about it because we've already gone through this in Syria and we know not to trust the official narrative when it comes to it. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I mean, my my view of how the the conflict is going is that it's a little bit different. Yes, Russia has suffered higher than expected casualties, but in in a funny way, I'm not justifying the invasion, obviously, but in a basically the, the the rationale was that Ukraine is becoming more and more dangerous to Russia uh, because it is allowing itself to be used as a proxy by the West to destabilize and threaten Russia. And the, ironically, the amount of damage that Ukraine has incurred on Russia uh, actually kind of proves that point that we, yes, we we arm that country to the teeth and train them really well, and that's actually why. Uh, this war is going so badly for Russia. Does that justify the invasion? No. But what I'm saying is that it's not surprising that Russia is taking really heavy losses. Um, but I don't think that it's going like so badly for Russia that they would do something like this to make it because you have to think about it. If it's already going badly for them, why would they do something that is guaranteed to make it go worse? For them? Yeah, I know. Well, that's why I'd say I can't put anything past it just because the, the way it's gone down yeah. has led me to significantly revise just how on the ball Putin is. But but I can say it makes no sense. And right. any claims about this type of escalation yeah. must be met by the strongest form of skepticism because yeah. there there is, once again, like in Syria, there is a lobby group that wants to be involved. There's a, whether it's for-profit defense contractors or it's like neocon ideologues, whatever you want. Um, there are people that would do anything to get us involved in this. Yes. Yeah. And no, they're going to say stuff to, to make their case. <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, again, it makes, there's so much misinformation about this war that everything makes me wonder what is actually going on. Like at the same time that you're hearing that, Ukraine is is um, staging these effective uh, these offensive movements, uh, pushing Russian forces back. What you're not hearing about is that uh, Mariupol is about to fall, or at least that yeah. Russia has control of like 80% of the city. And the only areas they don't control are these residential districts where um, these like these militants like Azov are hiding out, um, and they're just kind of taking their time clearing them out. But the point is, is that this is a really important city that is like days away from falling. It, this this is not like a a meme where it, it's like in the air, like, no, most of the city does, in fact, seem to be under Russian control. 
And yeah, no, I, I think that's that's a fair point. I, I would also say, though, like while the, the Western press has, and this is part of kind of building a narrative, Western press clearly wants to overrepresent Ukrainian successes, yes. Uh, yes. underplay Russian successes, tell very much like a, a winter war underdog story, yes. uh, like when Finland got attacked by the USSR, et cetera. But like, you know, A, Finland still lost the war. Finland gave up 10% of its territory and became an officially neutral country, which means officially the Soviet Union did win the Winter War. Uh, but B, uh, I think um, it, it's really it's really important to think that that's true, but it's also true that when you look at the initial operations, how they were focused on uh, like um, special forces raids near Kiev and stuff, I really, really think that Putin did attempt a, a a one and done one week maximum regime yeah. change operation. Yeah, it's I the only way right. that makes sense of all his logistical difficulties. It's the only way that makes sense of his weird speech. But right before the war, um, I, I really think that he he was going for a huge knockout blow, and the total it didn't happen at all. The, 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 none of this is going to plan, except for the fact that, as previously established, Russia is a much stronger country and can grind Ukraine into dust and will, in the end, get some form of... Um, it yeah. will get something for this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whether the cost yeah, justifies no. it is a totally different thing, but it, but it will get something. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, my, my point about the, like, the, the narrative making is that to people who are just getting their news from, like, CNN or whatever, or even Fox News, frankly... Um, with the exception of Tucker Carlson. But if you're just getting your news from there, then it would make sense to you for Russia to use chemical weapons. You would just not question it at all because as far as you know, like, you know, the Russians are about to get pushed out of Ukraine completely. The, the Ukrainian army is completely trouncing them. And, uh, and you know, like uh, Zelensky himself is personally marching on Moscow right now. So it would make sense for Russia to do something like uh, deploying chemical weapons, which is really dangerous because, it, it creates a scenario where you where you actually are not allowed to question motive because yeah. because then the motive seems clear. Well, he was losing the war so so dramatically that obviously he used chemical weapons. So we have now we have to intervene because we drew the red line there. And I think that's that is one of the reasons why this scenario is so dangerous because I mean the it, like the public is already kind of expecting this to happen. Um, and so on the one hand, when you create that narrative that you know, like uh, we're, we're about to see uh, a reversal and like Moscow is about to get marched on. Um, it, it makes sense that he would do something this drastic and it makes it morally unconscionable to question otherwise. Right. Uh, and it buries the fact that you've now through declarations like this made it so that Ukraine actually has a, a much more of a reason to for there to be some kind of event that could be interpreted as a WMD attack than, than Russia does. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, this is a really precarious position to be in um, for a lot of reasons. And but I hope that there's enough. I don't. It, it's interesting. Um, on the one hand, I think Americans are more skeptical than ever of getting involved in another foreign war. But on yeah. the other hand, I have never seen such a powerful consensus emerge around any, like not BLM, not even COVID. Like this, the, the consensus around you know. Who is who is good? Who is bad? And how the war is going? I've I've never seen it uh, like th like this before. I, I, it, it's it, war. I'm at, kind of at a loss for words for describing it. But um, like it's, an, it's an ongoing process. I would say I, it's an ongoing process. And I I actually I have an upcoming uh, project I'm working on 
yeah. uh, for IPD that is going to talk about a lot of themes related to this, although not specifically in, in the Ukraine context. But there's an uh, uh, there's been a constant process since uh, the government lost control over the narrative about Iraq to rebuild the justification towards the public towards military interventions. And it's moved away from like blatant, like rah, rah, trucker nuts chauvinism and, and, you know, remaking uh, uh, and, you know, opening up economies, quote unquote, and uh, the whole neocon thing. And it's moving much more into the Samantha power type of camp uh, of like protecting people and ensuring, you know, justice and et cetera, et cetera. And this this isn't out yet, but like, at some point in the near future, it should be out. <laughs> um, I'm going to have this whole big thing at IPD that really talks about this process and how it evolved from like the post-Iraq in particular up through now. And um, I, yeah, just it, it's this is really just a teaser, but I'm going to talk a lot about this because I think that what you're seeing right now is kind of the culmination of the switch effort to mold public opinion. Um, and I think that the first trial balloon of it came about exactly 10 years ago with the Coney 2012 campaign. And hmm. um, it was an attempt to take a very, very complicated situation and basically distill it so that it could be understood by incredibly kind of simple people who want to have strong opinions on things. Hmm. And that's, um, that's my, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know when that's out, hopefully soon. <laughs> but yeah, um, I've been, I've been tracking right. these trends. I've been tracking these trends and, and uh, I, I'm not surprised that they've become kind of more effective in a way. Even if people don't want a full-out intervention, the fact that social media says, you know, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's just easy to see how people can be whipped into believing anything about this war now because yeah. uh, it, it's the good guy, bad guy narrative, as was also tried in, in Syria, you know, it was, which was really much more difficult in a way because uh, whereas in Ukraine, Azov Battalion is the minority, like that is definitely not the majority of the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, in Syria, the, the percentage of rebels who were jihadists after like 2012, really, really high. So I think like it didn't quite work <laughs> there, though they tried. But now you can always say, oh, well, that's that's an insane, you know, RT type position. If you say that all of Ukraine is a Nazi paradise, and I agree, I see people say that, and I, I cannot disagree more. I think the vast majority of Ukrainians are, are not neo Nazis, but um, because you can dismiss that opinion, it becomes very, very easy to say, well, uh, you know, they're just the good guys, and you know, we should believe what they say, and and this is why we get so much of the American public willing to believe stories that are effectively like the English translation of official Ukrainian press reports. Like we get you, yes. the Ukrainian information agencies basically declaring what the news is and Western agencies just just repost it, if you will. Right. Like, and that's an yeah. issue. No, I've, it, it's actually incredible. Um, you, like the sources for a lot of Western media is Ukrainian official. <laughs> it's yeah. it's at the same time, like the same publication will will report something and like, you know, note that the information came from the Russian government and therefore it's, it's false. But then the same publication will quote, you know, a Russian official. <laughs> and no, I mean, the, the Western media has just become a kind of mouthpiece for the Ukrainian government. Um, but obviously there are overlapping interests here. And a, a, a point that I've written about, which gets into the, the power and the threat of false flags is the fact that so many Ukrainian media groups are basically backed by Western intelligence agencies. 
uh, like I, specifically the key I wrote about the Kiev independent and how you can connect the independent to both the national endowment for democracy and the European endowment for democracy, the spinoff of the NED. Um, like that you can, I mean, up until recently, you could actually go to the NED and, and search their database to see who who the NED had been giving grants to, which media organizations they've been giving grants to. Uh, but as of recently, you can no longer see their database. Uh, you, you can't track uh, and see who the NED has been giving money to. I, yeah. I, when I wrote about they it, wrote, up. What's that? They wised up because people start talking yeah. about them and and yeah. and how easy it was to track the stuff they did and who they yeah. funded and and now they're much more opaque than they used to be. Like, but original founder is on record saying like we yeah. do we do yeah. the stuff that the CIA used to do clandestinely. So, yeah. and I I mean I wrote I've written about this twice and I've quoted him twice on that and um it's and so again so much of Ukrainian media is not actually independent. I mean, on the one hand, you, you have, these are Ukrainian nationalists, so they have an understandable interest in, in, you know, in their side winning the war, obviously. Right. But on the other hand, they're also backed. <laughs> they're also backed in many cases by the actual CIA in the United States. Uh, and, and, or on the other hand, uh, by oligarchs, like a lot of these, a lot of these media groups are actually run by or funded by oligarchs like Ihor Kolomoisky, different story for another time but the point is is that in the event that there is something like a, a chemical weapon scenario um you're going to see a real swift and strong uh concentration behind pushing this like interventionism uh it's it's going to be like nothing else that we've seen so far and i don't think enough people are prepared for that for if, if that happens so I mean I, yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lot that. of people. I think there's a lot of people like me who who are who are very relieved that we didn't immediately jump right in and that we've taken a, a more cautious approach than our recent foreign policy perhaps make one assume. But there's a lot of people unlike me who who would be who are happy with that until the next thing happens or yeah. is stated right yeah. and that is the thing that just pushes them quote unquote like to the we have to do something trademark symbol uh you know statement because it, it's there comes a point where i think what's really going on is not so much like fact manipulation i just think there's a lot of stuff out there there's too much information to parse and a lot of it's bs and some of it's true but i think what's really going on is like a a kind of like emotional moral manipulation to just get yeah. people in a certain state where they can do something. Now, once again, kind of like with Syria, I think there's plenty of people in the government that don't want to get uh, further involved in Ukraine. So, so I don't think this is like some grand unified conspiracy or anything. I just think that what we're seeing is a is a kind of spillover effect of very intense debates in D.C. Uh, but as we know, uh, uh, some some sides, uh, the sides that are pro-intervention have gotten really, really good at narrative crafting. And um, I think that's just the thing that we have to be aware of, even if you're like me and you are 100% sympathetic to Ukraine. But, you know, I am not Ukrainian. The interests of my country are different than their interests. Yeah. Uh, and I can, the best case scenario, if we got involved, the absolute best case scenario is like, Someone, you know, like takes out Putin in Moscow and opens up negotiations and like uh, Ukraine is now like a, a BFFs, whatever. But then if that happened, that's the best case scenario. We have to permanently station American or EU or whatever troops right 
on Russia's border. And yeah, technically we already do that with the Baltic countries, but like to a much, like how huge is that border? <laughs> um, you know, we were talking about a huge flat land country right next to Russia. And you're just going to put for probably generations, um, you're just going to put troops there. You're going to freeze your relations with Russia. It's going to be a huge expense. It's not, is Eastern Europe particularly important for uh, the U.S.'s geopolitical standing? I would argue it is not. Um, <laughs> it's a very low cost benefit. And then, of course, this brings us to the other thing. Uh, one of the big things in justifying American presence everywhere all the time if we're not there we'll look what happens if we're not there uh, as if like history waits with bated breath for us to do something and we are the protagonists of the universe but like this whole uh, this whole posture relies on the assumption that the united states is the universal empire um that it's it's not a state but rather the planet given you know it, its pure uh, form and it's like no it's still a state it might be the most powerful state ever in terms of how much of the world it influences but it's still a state with limits it still has to pick and choose it has to make cost-benefit analysis we were economically much larger percentage of the world during Vietnam, and we still got driven out of our little puppet state in South Vietnam you know <laughs> context has the matter and uh, all politics is local first and do you want to become a local in southeastern europe and will that benefit us to become a local there and i think the answer is clearly no right. uh unless you're really into either and or arms deals and ideological projects so <laughs> yeah yeah no that's exactly right I, I don't think that it's a unified conspiracy uh to to get us involved here but it, the, the bottom line is that there are so many interest groups involved that are kind of going in the same, or at least want to go in the same basic direction, uh, which is uh, the direction contrary to the interests of, of, I don't know how else to say it, like say this, but middle Americans, normal Americans, people who don't uh, think that, you know, that we need to establish a permanent military presence uh, on, on all the reaches of the world. Um, and people that I think understand that are, the liberal interventionism has, you know, often made things worse in the long run. In the long run, that made them better. Absolutely. I, I, keep, I keep coming back to the interview with Madeleine Albright in 1996, where she was given, she was presented with the high estimate of uh, civilian casualties in Iraq that resulted from Washington-led sanctions on Iraq for its invasion of Kuwait, and the high estimate is, and the number is disputed, but. The, the fact is not. The high estimate that she was presented with was half a million children died as a result of these sanctions. Was it worth it? And then she said yes. So it, it, she didn't even dispute, you know, well, I think that number's too high. She was just like, yeah, yeah. half a million, yeah, worth it. And, I mean, yeah. and then we wonder, you know, like, why- That's more people world... than around killed in Kuwait. <laughs> right. And we wonder, you know, why, why is it that although we are the good guys who do something, uh, most of the world seems to be highly skeptical of our motives and even resents us. You know, like, why are Serbians siding with Russians on this? Why is China laughing at us when we talk about international law? Uh, yeah. Why, well, why, why, why is India, who we're so favorably inclined right. towards, buying Russian oil and saying, uh, you know, what happens in Europe stays in Yeah. And, and all of these countries will be, will be the first ones to accuse us uh, or the West of, of, you know, staging something like a false flag in order to get involved here. Why? Like, we don't stop to ask why that is. Why, why does the the world outside of this, the mythical international community uh, so deeply resent us? And again, uh, and 
kind of hold all of our motives in suspicion. We don't ask those questions. And until we start asking them, we're going to continue plotting into one disaster after another. And again, I mean, I'm trying to think of an intervention that we have done uh, like since like the Clinton era that's gone well. And I, I can't really think of one. Uh, that's an interesting challenge. I mean, uh, I know most people would say Kosovo because, you know, we lost one plane and, and technically Kosovo became independent. But uh, when you look at a cost-benefit analysis of how much money we spent and, and the, the complete irrelevance of an independent Kosovo um, to our interests, I would still say that was, well, it was a victory of sorts. I, I would say it, it's like kind of stepping on an ant and then crowing about it. Um, right. So the only thing I can really, I mean, the only military operation that the U.S. has had that's like been very international that I've supported in my adult life, so like coming of age in the 2000s, um, has been our counter ISIS operations in Iraq. But the problem with that is, is like you still have to temper that with like, this wouldn't have happened without the Iraq war. Right. Yeah. And it wouldn't yeah. have been fueled without right. our fueling of the Syrian civil war, right. where we were right. almost kind of on the same side as ISIS there. So the whole yeah. thing gets like really weird. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's really hard to say, oh, that was a really great intervention. That worked really well. Yeah. Like I, I intervene to fix the problem that we created, basically. Exactly. So do you count that? Do you count the fact that we helped Iraq recapture territory from ISIS because ISIS <laughs> wouldn't have been there without us in the first right. place? So. Yeah. And then really I, mean, with, I, I interviewed a, a woman who spent three months in a bomb shelter um, during the Kosovo War uh, in Belgrade because, because of the NATO bombing. And she she lived through that. I mean, it, it was really interesting to hear her perspective because you never hear this, right? You never hear about the fact that the, the Clinton-led bombing of of Serbia uh, killed about, I mean, the estimates range, but I mean, the, the number that I see most consistently is about 500 civilians were killed by NATO. And again, when Hillary Clinton says that if, you know, if Russia doesn't want to be accused of war crimes, it shouldn't bomb hospitals. Why does everyone laugh when she says that? Well, it's because NATO hit hospitals in, in former Yugoslavia. Uh, yeah. And the Chinese embassy, which is yeah, still an incredibly bizarre mean, event that no one. China is convinced, by the way, that the United States did that deliberately, uh, because I, I think for for different reasons. But I mean, the fact is, is that we hit the embassy with I think three five GPS guided bombs. So it was like <laughs> precision munitions that we hit the embassy with, and so China could only conclude that that was on purpose. And it, yeah, I was in Belgrade. The same thing if I was them. Now, granted, I don't know. Maybe there's a reason that we we had to, to do that, and we didn't actually. We got it confused, and early precision guided missiles weren't that great, or whatever. Sure, anything could be possible. But if five precision guided missiles hit my embassy, my <laughs> my immediate question would be like, uh, "Could you please explain this to me?" Uh, yeah. No, I mean, and again. All of these things have shaped perception for the other half of the world about about the West and its motives. And yeah, I mean, the, these are important questions that I think don't get asked enough. They don't get talked about enough. Chris, um, thank you so much. Where can people follow your work and, and kind of keep track of what you're up to? All right, I'm not I'm not the world's uh, most active Twitter user, but I do have a Twitter handle. It's uh, Chris D. Mott. 
um, where I will repost wh whenever I publish something, I'll repost it there. Um, in my personal capacity, I have a blog called GeoTrickster, one word, uh, which is weird enough sounding, but I'm sure it's the only thing that comes up if you look for it, um, <laughs> um, which was originally uh, just about geopolitics. But um, since now I, I write on a professional capacity for that, now it's just morphed into something else entirely, although it still has a bit of that there. Um, and yeah, I, I have a lot of my work on uh, through the Institute of Peace and Diplomacy on their website. I have uh, my own employee page, just like everyone else that works there. So um, yeah, there's there's a few places, I guess. Great. Okay. Well, people should follow you. Uh, I mean, you're doing you're doing very interesting work. You're doing important work, and I look forward to. Hopefully, we can talk again when you publish this uh, this piece on the 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 long psyop. I don't know, I don't know how else to call it. The, <laughs> Interventionism is good, actually. It's it's actual working title right now is woke Imperium, but uh, yeah, you can <laughs> you can call it whatever it is because who knows what the final title will actually be. I think that's that's why you should. Well, I'm, I'm obviously for a serious organization, you probably shouldn't run with that title. But but I mean that captures exactly what this is. Uh, I mean, it's not an accident that the same people. Uh, I mean, the Venn diagram for people who put a black square in their Instagram to support BLM and uh, also, you know, uh, bragged about getting triple vaxxed and support Ukraine. It's like, it's just a circle. It's, it's oh, basically all the same people. But there's also like, I, the reason I'm, I mean, the whole thing is originally my idea. That's why I'm writing it. But also the reason I'm writing it is because I myself am not a conservative. So it comes, it's not like a polemic, you know, or anything like that. It's really just a statement of things that are happening and also drawing it in context. So, you yeah. know, what we're seeing now happening to uh, what uh, is called the left in mainstream discourse, I would say it is just the neoliberal center, but whatever. Um, what, we're, what we're seeing that happening is what we did used to see the conservatives do in the Bush era. So, yes, you know, absolutely. this isn't one, this isn't at all a partisan thing. I am an independent, I don't belong to any party. Uh, th this is really just a, a, a view of, of America weaponizing moralism and how it changes to suit the, the time, right? Yes. So it's like a kind of a changing in and out of fashions, if you will. Yeah. No, it totally, it's totally correct. And it, um, yeah, I mean, this, is, this whole conflict uh, has basically, I think in my view, it's kind of eliminated uh, or accelerated the elimination of left and right distinctions because, I mean, I'm getting called a lefty and a tanky by Washington Post journalists, and like the most the most cursory look at my work, at my oh, work, yeah. right? And I, I'm getting called a tanky because I'm saying that we shouldn't intervene in Russia uh, or in Ukraine. Like I'm getting called a leftist because I'm I'm being critical of of the Ukrainian government. It it's just it really has uh, ruined people's brains and really accelerated you know the eliminate the the. the obsolescence of um of con the, even conservative and liberal i mean there's really no difference right now between what fox news is saying and what uh cnn is saying they're, they're totally unified in this and it's it's right. and they're unified by not by political affiliation but by this sense of moralism that you're writing about yeah absolutely i think that what what we're seeing the, the funny thing is these kind of people that tend to i i'd say most hawkishness concentrates in the political center, uh, at least in establishment circles, what you see a lot of uh, commentary that comes out that is very much about the, you know, like the Alexander Reed Ross thesis, the, the, the Red-Brown Alliance. But like the true Red-Brown Alliance I see is the coming together of like, like 
uh, diehard Democratic liberals and like old neoconservative Republicans. <laughs> and everyone else is just responding to that. And they're like, well, we don't want World War III. We don't want eternal empire. We want a sustainable, like, we, we want realism and restraint, to use the phrase. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and a lot of people want that it, from all across the ideological spectrum. And, and they're just responding to the fact that there's a coming together of the bipartisan establishment that, that wants to keep the permanent war state going forever. Uh, yeah. So I actually think it's, it's, it's those establishment actors primarily yeah. who are responsible for a realignment, but I'm more than willing to take them up on it because we're talking about issues of war and peace and there has to be an opposition to this endless drive towards always intervening, always bombing people, always installing these things. Someone has to oppose it, and it should be a lot of people, because most people, I think, do want to oppose it. Yeah. I think I'm going to name this episode The Woke Imperium, False Flags and the Woke Imperium. Uh, good, good, good uh, title. Chris, thank maybe, you. So maybe, maybe, maybe not, because, you know, that hasn't come out yet. So, okay. you know. I'll, I'll um, leave it to you. I'll leave the uh, the copyright of the Woke Imperium to you. I don't want to get sued. <laughs> well, I, I won't. I won't. I'm just saying. I'm just saying we we could have a Woke Imperium episode later when the Woke Imperium <laughs> comes out. Um, okay, that sounds good. All right, Chris. Thanks so much, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next one. Yeah. Talk to you later.